Hi, and welcome to the next episode of the Cornerstone Podcast. This week, we continue our series on eschatology, the study of the end times, and today we'll be covering the seven churches of Revelation. Six out of seven of these churches have problems that they are facing that John addresses in these letters. And I believe that they aren't only letters addressed to seven churches of that day, but letters addressed to the universal church of the current day. If you look around, in each of our churches, there are issues that we face. In some congregations, it's division. In some congregations, it's a loss of focus. And in other congregations, there's an idolization of pastors or leaders over God. I've only lived about 17 years, but I've already seen churches torn apart as a result of division, and I've heard more stories than I can count about churches that split over a petty dispute. Every church has their problem. Whether it's one of the three that I mentioned or something separate, all churches have problems. In these seven letters written by John to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Jesus Christ instructs him to write based on this criterion. One, Christ will mention a positive thing about their ministry. Then two, Christ will mention the problem of their ministry. Though these letters were addressed to these seven particular churches, I believe they were equally applicable to the Universal Church of 2021. Let's go ahead and look at John's message to the church collectively preceding Christ's instructed words. Beginning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even though who, those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation, and kingdom, and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Yes, I understand that this was a whole lot to take in. But to explain this passage, 
This is John's introduction to the seven churches, explaining God's revelation to him about what he is to tell the churches, as well as the information of the tribulation. John wrote this book while banished on the island of Patmos. On Patmos, God gave John a revelation about the tribulation, the second coming, the millennial reign of Christ, the Antichrist, the lake of fire, judgment day, and many other prophetic references that you might be familiar with. Within these next several weeks of this series, we will study through the book of Revelation and talk about these different revelatory topics. As we've already taken note of, God has revealed this information to John and these letters to John to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. These churches are Ephesus, which you may be familiar with from the book of Ephesians, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Let's begin by looking at the first church. Ephesus. Take a look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, let's stop here for a second. I want you to note this. If you'll note the use of the word angel in this verse, you might be wondering, what is the angel of the church in Ephesus? Well, in the Greek, the word angel is angelos, which means messenger. We obviously know that an angel can't lead a church, so we can safely assume that when John writes to the angel of the church, it is directed toward the leaders of the Ephesian church, and to the remaining six churches. Continuing in verse 1. To the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In the first three verses, we see that God is commending Ephesus for its positive traits, but look at verse 4. I'll repeat what it says. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What does this mean? What is Ephesus' first love? It's simply Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry writes in his Bible commentary this, quote, The first affections of men toward Christ and holiness and heaven are usually lively and warm. God remembered the love of Israel's espousals when she would follow him whithersoever he went. These lively affections will abate and cool if great care be not taken and diligence used to preserve them in constant ex exercise. Christ is grieved and displeased with his people when he sees them grow remiss and cold towards him, and he will one way or another make them sensible that he does not take it well from them. End quote. And John MacArthur writes in his Bible commentary this, quote, To be a Christian is to love the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Ephesians' passion and fervor for Christ had become cold, mechanical orthodoxy. Their doctrinal and moral purity, their undiminished zeal for the truth, and their disciplined service were no substitute for the love for Christ that they had forsaken. End quote. In these two commentaries on Revelation chapter 2 verse 4, we see that these two equate man's affection toward Christ with an analogy of temperature. Matthew Henry uses words like warm or Christ is grieved and displeased with his people when he sees them grow remiss and cold. MacArthur uses words like, but the Ephesians' passion and fervor for Christ had become cold. What does it mean for their love to grow cold? It means that they've lost focus. They've lost their first love that is Jesus Christ and have lost focus on what church is truly about. David Guzik, in his Bible commentary, wrote these words about Ephesus. Quote, 
Though they had left their first love, everything looked great on the outside. If you would have attended a service on the church of Ephesus, you might have thought, this is a happening church. They are doing so much, and they really guard the truth. At the same time, you might have a vague, uneasy feeling, yet it would be very hard to pin down. It wasn't hard for Jesus to see the problem, even though everything probably looked wonderful on the outside. End quote. Let me ask you this. Are there any churches that come to mind when you hear those words? When you look at these ministries, you see from an outside perspective that they are prosperous churches. There are many, many churches like this today. If you look back at MacArthur's commentary, note these words he uses. The Ephesians' passionate and fervor for Christ to become cold. Now pay attention, don't miss this. Mechanical orthodoxy. Mechanical orthodoxy. A.K.A. mechanical church. Many churches come to my mind when I think of seemingly prosperous ministries that reflect that of quote-unquote mechanical orthodoxy. Now, what is mechanical orthodoxy or mechanical church? It's a church that, though it may seem prosperous, have amazing programs and have exciting worship, they have lost focus and have grown cold. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, A church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold. Lose love lose all. The church's focus should be to have doctrinal purity, like Ephesus had, or to have great programs and exciting worship. But without love, the spiritual health and condition of your congregation might as well be tossed out the window. Now that we've recognized the issue of the Ephesian church, let's continue in verse 5, looking at God's solution for them. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Christ first wants Ephesus to recognize their problem and to remember from where they have fallen. He wants them to look back and remember when they were a genuinely lively church that had the love of God and the love towards others. The second thing Christ wants Ephesus to do is, quote, do the deeds you did at first. Now, what are those deeds? Those deeds are to return to perfect church health, which would be returning to studying the Bible, fervently praying, enjoying getting together with other Christians, and being excited in evangelism. How do we know that these are the first deeds? Think a second about what you think a genuinely healthy church is. The people are joyful. The people are earnest to fellowship amongst fellow Christians. The people prioritize time in Scripture, and they study it and grow in their faith. The people look to God, not only through the fire and through the valley, but on the mountaintops in a time of peace, meaning they pray fervently. The congregation gathers in worship, and they experience a true atmosphere of praise. That is a healthy church. The third thing that Christ wants Ephesus to do is heed his warning, which is that he will remove their lampstand. What does that mean? God will personally remove his hand from their ministry. They can continue as an organization that calls themselves a church, but the hand of God will be removed losing the light and presence of God. And as time progressed, they would die a slow and painful death. That is not only applicable to the church of Ephesus in that day, but to the universal church and every church body in this world in the current day. Look at your church. Examine the spiritual condition of your church. You might have all these wonderful, attractive programs, and you might have a packed house on Sunday morning, but do you still have your first love? Have you left it behind and grown cold? If so, your church might be dying, and the spiritual condition of the congregation is probably falling apart. Remember your first love. Remember your focus. Remember how your church was in a time where they were healthy, 
when people were in the Word, when they were excited to come to church, when they submitted their heart to God in a service and truly praised His holy name, when they prayed to God through all circumstances, good and bad. If you examine your church and find that you've cast aside the true meaning of church, remember to look back at that, return to that, else your ministry will die a spiritual death and gradually a slow and painful death for your church itself. The second church, Smyrna. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. I want you to first note that there's not exactly a fault that God points out about the church of Smyrna, but merely a warning. I said in the beginning of this, of this episode that six out of seven of these churches have problems. Now, Smyrna, yes, it has problems, that being that some of the people will be thrown in prison and will be tested, but this is the only church that's problems don't have roots within its own congregation. This warning, though it is addressed to Smyrna, is also addressed to the modern-day church. What is that warning? It's a warning to prepare for persecution. Note that God warned that they were going to be thrown into prison for their beliefs by a hypocritical crowd of people who, quote, say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. As I said a moment ago, this is a warning to prepare for persecution. Now more than ever, under an anti-Christian, anti-moral, anti-Bible, Biden administration, Will Christians experience persecution in the United States? What was known as the land of the free and the home of the brave, a nation built on the foundations of the principles of the Word of God, is going to neglect the Bible, neglect God, neglect morality, and persecute those who stand in faith and trust on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And something, this is a thought I had that I found pretty interesting. If you note in verse 9 that it says, Those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I find this to be a very good comparison to Joe Biden. He claims to be a Catholic, but stands against the Bible. Just as the people in Samaria claim to be Jews, but were far from it, Joe Biden is a hypocrite. He supports abortion, claiming that life does not begin at conception. He stands, in, stands behind and promotes homosexuality and transsexuality. He stands with a party that promotes lawlessness and the defund the police nonsense, and that's, that only scratches the surface. Just thought I'd make that comparison and leave that one out there for you to think about. Back to persecution. In this political climate, censorship of fundamental, traditional, conservative values is becoming more and more prominent every single day. Eventually, we'll be at a point where even expressing biblical truth or even attending church on Sunday morning will not be allowed. We're on the primrose path to communism in the United States. The COVID-19 restrictions are just ways to set the stage for people to entirely depend on the government. It might not be today, it might not be next year, it might not even be in 10 years, but it is coming. God warns Smyrna of this, and he's warning the church at the modern day of this as well. The reason that I believe God revealed this to John to put in Revelation is because in the prophetic nature of the book of Revelation, it will be a problem in the church as the rapture and second coming draw closer. Prepare for persecution. Get ready for your faith to be tested. The third church, Pergamum. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, 
I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who is killed among you where Satan dwells. Pause. Note that Antipas is a person who is believed to be the pastor of Pergamum. Let's continue. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Pause again. Note that the Nicolaitans are people who followed Nicholas, who was made a deacon in Acts chapter 6. He was a false believer who denounced his faith, but led many astray into a life of self-pleasure and immorality. Continuing in verse 16. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The teachings of Balaam and of Nicholas are all about self-pleasure and include total immorality. The problem that God had with Pergamum is that it was heading into a direction of being an entirely immoral establishment that placed self-pleasure and immorality over God. We're living in a day and time where culture looks at Christians and frowns upon us for standing up for the Bible and standing against immorality. They claim that we're hateful, judgmental, unloving, and unaccepting because of it. I remember, it wasn't far too long ago, that I was having dinner at Olive Garden with some friends of mine. A friend, it was her birthday, and she wanted us to all gather together, hang out, have dinner, and celebrate her birthday. I knew most of the people at, at the quote-unquote young people table, excluding about three of them. One of which, of these three people I didn't know, I could tell instantly did not like me. She had been told that I was conservative, I was Christian, and that I was called in the ministry to be a pastor. Well, one conversation began that evening, I won't go into detail about what it was, but this young lady, disliking what I said about it, called me a prude. See, we're living in a day where morals are frowned upon by a society and culture that call good evil and evil good. The warning that God gave us is to stand against immorality and not allow it to enter the church. The fourth church, Thyatira. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love and faith, and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold their, this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I have also received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. The problem with Thyatira, much like with Pergamum, is immorality. But Thyatira's immorality was centered on one thing, sexual immorality. 
note in verse 20 that God says you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, I believe that this is more of a pseudonym and that woman God is referencing is not actually named Jezebel. But in order for the reader to understand, I believe the Lord instructed John to write Jezebel because we Christians who know the story of Jezebel would understand what was meant. For those listeners who don't know who Jezebel is, Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab who ruled the nation of Israel in 1st and 2nd Kings. She was an incredibly wicked woman who encouraged against the worship of God. She convinced Israel to give in to their curiosity of other false gods and to begin to promote, in particular, Baal, the god of fertility. Jezebel encouraged serious sexual immorality and idolatry in the nation of Israel and is often referred to as the embodiment of what Israel needed to get rid of. I won't go more in-depth than that, but that gives you kind of an idea of who Jezebel is. Thyatira's struggle was that there was a Jezebel in their church who was promoting complete and total sexual impurity. I can't think of any church in particular off the top of my head that is experiencing this sort of issue, but I can expect it to come. It may not come in the sense that someone will deliberately promote sexual impurity amongst their congregation, but in the sense that the church will become desensitized to sexual morality. Whereas today, some Christians will frown upon anyone who has been sexually immoral or had an affair. The desensitized Christian may not have begun in the church, but it has certainly begun to culminate in the home. Someone was telling me about a program that someone introduced to them on Netflix that I believe this was what it included. Serious language, including the F word and the derogatory term for a woman's genital, as well as the implication of sexual intercourse. And my friend says that this person who suggested the program proclaims to be a Christian. We've, we've become so desensitized to the culture around us. Watch their programs that include implied sex, serious language, and that completely defy the standard morals of the Bible, and we won't even bat an eye. Now, I'm sounding awfully judgmental, but I'm a part of that crowd too. I'll admit it. Nearly every Christian, to an extent, has become desensitized to this. And I think one of God's warnings to us today from what he said to the church of Thyatira is that we don't allow ourselves to get to the point where we're so desensitized that we allow a Jezebel to enter the church and promote sexual impurity and not even think twice about it. The fifth church, Sardis. Let's begin in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. Let's stop here and break down this passage. In the latter half of verse 1, note what Christ says. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now what does this mean? It means that they are a lively church. Vance Havner, a renowned 20th century revivalist from North Carolina, said these words about what he believed the church of Sardis was like. Quote, We are not to get to the impression that Sardis was a defunct affair with the building a wreck, the members scattered, or the pastor ready to resign. It was a busy church with meetings every night, committees galore, wheels within wheels, promotion and publicity, and something going on all the time. It had a reputation of being a live, wide-awake, going concern. We notice, with the trend of these seven churches aside from Smyrna, is that Christ lists a positive thing regarding their ministry, then lists a negative. 
In the case of Sardis, that negative is that while they are alive, they are dead. In this context, that means that they are spiritually dead. This is a large problem that a lot of churches in America are facing. The spiritual condition of the universal church is something to be incredibly concerned about. I mentioned earlier the desensitized nature of modern Christianity. Part of that problem is the lack of spiritual growth within separate church bodies. This can tie in with the condition of the church of Ephesus. They left their first love, Jesus Christ. Without the focus being on Christ fully 100%, the spiritual condition and growth of the church is bound to experience deterioration, leading to a desensitized Christian culture. The point of church is to worship God wholeheartedly, to grow spiritually through the teaching of His Word, to fellowship and congregate with fellow believers, and to serve a community that desperately needs God. You can have all the programs in the world, have all the people in the world, have all the money in the world, but if you fail to keep things in focus, that focus being Jesus Christ, His glorification, the spiritual growth of His children, the spiritual welfare of the lost, the spiritual condition of you and your church will deteriorate and your church will die. All the programs and the efforts and the time will be in vain. God's problem with Sardis and His warning to us today is to not allow us to get to a point where we are spiritually dead as the universal church. That's a problem that I have with so many ultra-contemporary churches. Pastors in these churches fail to preach deep theology and the seriousness of conviction and repentance of sins that there is no growth for the congregation. In order to keep the large crowds, there can be no stepping on toes in these ultra-contemporary atmospheres. Make them feel good. Make them feel comfortable. Let them come in and enjoy the rock and roll worship. But don't challenge them and help them experience conviction so that they can repent of their sin. God forbid that. This is a serious problem. Seeker-sensitive churches have ruined spiritual growth. Like I said, you have to make your congregation feel good, make them feel comfortable, have attractive, seemingly exciting worship, and have programs that seem a whole lot of fun. It's all about numbers and making them go up. We, as the church, need to get into focus and realize that having church is not about pleasing the members, making them feel comfortable and providing programs that are fun, but about glorifying God and helping God's children realize their sin so that they can repent and grow. That's not going to happen as long as you tiptoe around people's sin and sugarcoat it. Yes, it's important to have fun programs and be excited about worship, but if the point of all those programs and exciting worship services is to make the church grow numerically, the point of church has been discarded. Focusing on numerical growth is treating the church like an organization, but prioritizing spiritual growth is treating the church like an organism. The church is an organism. The Sixth Church, Philadelphia As a younger child, when I read Revelation for the first time, I thought the Church of Philadelphia was located in Pennsylvania. But anyway, let's look at this passage beginning in chapter 3, verse 7. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogues of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, 
the new Jerusalem which comes down out of the heaven from my God and my new name. What God is saying to the church of Philadelphia is not that they are sinful or have any sort of sin issue, but that they fail to take advantage of evangelistic opportunity when the doors are opened. A couple weeks ago, I had an episode entitled, The Attitude of Evangelism. In that episode, I pointed out a verse from Colossians 4 that says this, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word. Now, we know that Paul wrote this in a prison to the Colossian church, but we can apply this to our own lives. Pray for God to open doors to share the word. Philadelphia has opportunity hitting them in the face. God has an open door. He is inviting them to take advantage of the opportunity to evangelize. But it's the church of Philadelphia's choice to go through the door. Many churches today have the opportunity to evangelize to this lost and dying world, but fail to take action when the opportunity is easy. And the reason they don't? Comfort. We're too comfortable to go out to the people that need Jesus most. As sad as it is to say, in some churches, it's classism. Rich, snobby Christians don't want to evangelize to impoverished communities. I hate to say that, but I've seen it before in not just one, not just two, but it, probably three to four to five churches. Let's look at John chapter 4 verses 7 through 9. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Let's stop here for a second. I want you to note this. The New American Standard Version adds these words following in the parentheses. For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Do you think Jesus looked at the woman at the well and scoffed, saying, I'm a Jew, she's a Samaritan, I'll have nothing to do with her because I'm the Almighty Son of God? Absolutely not. Jesus looked at her and thought that this was a woman that needed him. In our lives and in our churches, we shouldn't allow things like classism to push us away from evangelizing to the people that need the Lord most. Take advantage of any open door, walk right through it, and share the story of Jesus Christ. No matter who, no matter where, no matter when, God's problem with the Church of Philadelphia was that they knew that they had an open door to share the gospel, but they failed to walk through it. Pastors listening to this, I encourage you to push for evangelism in your church. Pray for God to open doors, and if he already has, pray for the strength and perseverance as you walk through them. As I said in the episode entitled, The Attitude of Evangelism, our simple, most fundamental calling as Christians is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. The seventh church, Laodicea. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed an eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The problem that Christ had with Laodicea is that of being lukewarm. They were neither on fire for Jesus nor cold like the Ephesian church. They were just in the middle. David Guzik words the attitude of Laodicean members as this. The lukewarm Christian has enough of Jesus to satisfy a craving for religion 
but not enough for eternal life. He progresses to use Judas as an example, saying, Judas was lukewarm, following Jesus enough to be considered a disciple, yet not giving his heart over to Jesus in fullness. So this was the problem of the Laodicean church. The people would refuse to fully put their trust in Jesus. It's not that they weren't Christians, but that they were independent and thought they could do it all on their own. But remember what John 15:5 says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. This warning isn't exactly addressed to the universal church today, but I think it's a practical application to each and every Christian. Don't be lukewarm. Either be on fire for God or not. Live a Christian life or neglect the Christian life. It's just like with kids. They don't just want the Oreos or the Chips Ahoy, but they want the Oreos and the Chips Ahoy. They can't have both, and neither can a Christian be warm and cold at the same time. The lessons from the seven churches of Revelation are not dated, but practical and real. The threat of immorality, spiritual decay, and persecution are a real and present danger to the church. In your everyday life, keep your focus on God. I love the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It reminds us to keep our focus. Don't go grow cold in your Christian walk. Don't allow self-pleasure and the de desire of the flesh to conquer your life. Don't become spiritually dead. Stay in the Word of God and grow in Him. Take every opportunity and open the door to share God's Word. And don't become lukewarm. Choose to be on fire for God. Pastors, help your church keep focus as well. Don't let the sheep wander astray. Guard them, help them grow, and keep their focus on Jesus. This has been the Cornerstone Podcast. I hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Wednesday as we continue our study on the end times. God bless.